coming up on Garden Talk. If they're unmated, they produce males. If they're mated, they'll produce females. So it only takes one female mite for you to have an infestation. So for a lot of reasons, BRICS doesn't really make sense as a proxy for plant health, uh, but it can be really helpful just to gauge the photosynthetic rate. I would be very careful and cautious because a lot of the medicinal substances and things might be associated with the flowering or perhaps even the fruiting bodies. I think that it's very useful to utilize things like wettable sulfur, not burned sulfur, but wettable sulfur of aphids, and you see these like worm-like organisms kind of around them. Don't kill them because they're not caterpillars. They're actually going to attack the aphids that you're dealing with. But you got to be careful because if we overapply these sorts of things, we can run into resistance issues. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk Podcast. This is episode number 48. In this episode, I interview Matthew Gates. He has a significant amount of knowledge when it comes to insects, and he's been an IPM specialist for the past 11 years. In this episode, he talks about the top 10 pests that you may face in your garden and how to combat them. Thanks to all of you who support this podcast or Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into it, I want to acknowledge that one of my goals for this podcast is to bring zero cost for information about gardening, all plants, to the general public. That being said, I'd like to thank the sponsors of today's episode who helped make that goal possible. Big shout out to Dutch Pro for sponsoring this podcast. Dutch Pro is a plant fertilizer company that has been around for over 30 years. They have base nutrients, and they also have additives such as PK boosters, root stimulators, CalMag, silica, a nutrient optimizer, and a foiler feed. They also have pH regulators to help ensure that the nutrients can be uptaken properly. I will leave a link to Dutch Pro's Amazon store down in the description section below, and you can use coupon code MrGrowIt10DP for a discount on their products. A big supporter of this podcast is AC Infinity. They sponsor this podcast, and I use their products. AC Infinity now has gardening tools and accessories such as heavy-duty fabric grow pots, trimmers, grow room glasses, drying racks, plant ties, and trellis nets. They also have all of the equipment needed for a ventilation system. I will leave a link to AC Infinity down in the description section below, and you can use discount code MrGrowIt during checkout for a discount on their products. And we are back. Welcome to the Garden Talk Podcast. Today I am joined with Matthew Gates. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for coming on today. You have been on multiple podcasts or live streams and you have a ton of knowledge when it comes to different insects and that's what we're going to talk about today. So this is going to be action-packed for those of you who are worried about pests or are battling pests. We're going to go over the top 10 or at least we're going to try to get through the top 10. Uh, if not, that's okay. But we're going to get through some of the common pests that invade your garden and things you can do to combat them. So super excited for this conversation today. But first, things I like to do first is introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening? Absolutely. So my name is Matthew Gates. Professionally, I work as an IPM specialist that stands for Integrated Pest Management. And I've been doing this for about 11 years. It'll be 12 years in April of uh, this year, actually. And I've been interested in growing plants and especially looking at insects and other sorts of uh, creepy crawlies, as some people would call them, uh, since I was a very young child, to be honest. And uh, I've grown as a gardener since my early teenage years when I 
uh, used to plant certain plants and and, and um, in my parents' house and that sort of a thing, and uh, it was very foundational for me. And uh, now I work in agriculture. That's awesome. You also have a YouTube channel that I'm familiar with. I'm subscribed to it. I'll definitely have that link down in the YouTube description section below for those of you that are tuning in on YouTube. But for those that are on the podcast platforms, can you tell us what it is? Yes, absolutely. So the name of the channel is Zenthanol, and the name of my consulting group is Zenthanol Consulting. So that's the reason for that. And uh, at that channel, I like to talk about various plant health topics, usually focused on pests in my pest primer series where I go over very quickly uh, very uh, information-dense packets of information <laughs> about uh, various pests. So aphids and fungus gnats and things like that, uh, how to treat them, their physiology, strengths and weaknesses, and other sorts of cool details that will help you succeed in treating them in a holistic manner. Awesome. Cool. Well, let's get right into some of the common pests. I want to start with fungus gnats. So this is something I've battled many times in the past, you know, especially if you're growing organically. You know, one of the key things to do is to keep the medium moist, you know, have those microbes working to break down those amendments, make them available to the plant. However, fungus gnats thrive on that wet medium, right? That's very true. So they come through very, very often. Can you talk to us about fungus gnats? Maybe, you know, what are fungus gnats, you know, ways to battle them, et cetera, et cetera? Sure, absolutely. And you've hit the nail on the head. That is the major problem is that on the one hand, you need that moisture in your substrate. But at the same time, fungus gnats and other organisms love that uh, situation. What's good for the plants is good for the pests, as it turns out. So... I do tell people very often, not just for fungus gnats, but other sorts of pests, uh, especially if you have a mulch, that uh, sometimes the best thing you can do is actually kind of let things dry out at the top layer. And, um, you know, it's sort of unfortunate. It does sort of um, obviously will affect some level of microbial diversity uh, and, and of course, your topsoil dynamics. But um, generally speaking, if you kind of have an overrun or overabundance of them, that's sometimes what you have to do at least to get it a little bit under control. There are various products that you can use as well, and um, my favorite way to go about it, um, if you're a home grower, uh, sometimes you can acquire things like nematodes. There are a few different ones you can apply. Um, I find that they work really well in my personal experience, not only in home growing settings, but also commercially. There's a few species, Steiner Nema felchiae, or SF, is very commonly used. You could also use Styronema uh, caprocapsi, I believe it's how it's pronounced, which is like uh, SC. Um, but uh, personally, I just like to use the SF nematodes or um, an application of Bouveria bastiana, which is an entomopathogenic fungus that's uh, commercially available, but I think you can also acquire it in other cases for, for the home grower. And um, there are also botanical insecticides that you can use that are derived from plants like azoteractin from neem or um, uh, pyrethrin from chrysanthemum uh, plants. But you have to be a little bit careful with that. Uh, generally speaking, especially in a home grow setting, you don't necessarily know. And it's been my experience that some plants will react totally fine if you apply at the label rate or half the label rate or whatever that is for you um, where you're growing. And sometimes plants are very susceptible or um, for whatever reason, weak to it. So you have to be careful. Whenever you're using a new product like that, um, I always caution that people apply it sort of at a, a lower rate just to see. I usually have the yellow sticky traps. I put them by the grow pot by soil level. Then I can see if they, if they have the problem to begin with. 
Then from there, I'll do treatments. Now, I've done neem oil in the past, which you mentioned. would like to know specifically what's your recommendation for how often to spray neem oil in regards to, to getting rid of fungus knots. Uh, I always say when it comes to um, application rates, that's super important. And this will be true for all the pests we talk about to a crop scout and to, to be very vigilant and looking at your plants. Because sometimes you can apply something and in one context, you can be one and done very rarely, but it happens sometimes or maybe two and done. And you can apply it like one day and then wait a day and take a look and then maybe apply it the next day or the day after that. Um, but it's always going to be constantly looking at uh, you know, your status and your particular pressure. Um, with fungus gnats too, you make a great point about having the sticky cards. It's also really useful to sometimes have them outside of your property um, so that you can see what you acquire outside and you can see what the pressure is in the ambient location. Sometimes you have something as simple as a, a leaky pipe or some other sort of thing that creates a, um, a, a water-dense zone of moisture uh, surrounding your area maybe you live near a, ri a river or a stream potentially and that could be a potential sort of um, haven for these fungus gnats and other pests and so then they can ingress from that location so if you're aware of your context outside as only well, as uh, well as inside the cultivation space then uh, i think that's a very useful information and can help modulate how often you have to apply and unfortunately in some cases people just get them like too often, uh, and it's because of their locality rather than them doing anything specifically wrong. Now, how about nematodes? Nematodes, you mentioned that was a way to, to combat them. Um, I've never used them before. What is the typical application rate for them? What's all around you, almost everywhere you look, and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Uh, so it, again, it does really depend on your pressure. I would try to apply them when you have a heavy amount. Uh, it might not be worth the economically and also sort of the hassle, especially as a home grower, uh, to apply them uh, unless you're applying them perhaps regularly or if the crop um, that you're growing is just sort of worth it for you uh, potentially. Uh, there's a lot of factors to consider, but about uh, a lot of times these nematodes come in quite large amounts. You might even purchase them in the in the built in the yeah, actually the millions and perhaps, you know, multiple millions of nematodes. It's important to apply them. Usually there's a, there will be some sort of um, instructions. You can always talk to the, the supplier to get better information about their specific product. Uh, but it's usually very important to apply them if you're watering them in with some sort of agitation. That's uh, something that people often um, don't remember to do. And so what happens is that all the nematodes sort of stay at the bottom and you're applying, you're watering it in, maybe through some sort of pump. And especially if you're using a nozzle that has grating, you will smash the nematodes, and they won't ex <laughs> they won't exist any longer if they go through some sort of mesh grating. So be sure to those are the two perhaps biggest things 
um, that I see people make an error about when it comes to fungus net application, or rather, uh, nematode application for fungus gnats. Yeah, so nematodes, you know, you can see you can buy them off of Amazon. I've heard mixed reviews off of them, like sometimes they show up dead or something like that. Do you have like a source that you can recommend for nematodes? Absolutely. There are a lot of biocontrol companies that, um, and I always, I always say this, so I'll keep it very brief. Essentially, there are primary producers and there are tertiary producers. And generally, you don't want to buy from tertiary producers because the product is usually um, not up to snuff for various reasons, either because they got the biocontrols and they've kind of kept them in this sort of, um, you know, staging system where uh, they're not really the freshest that they could be. So that can be a problem. Of course, you might get something secondhand if you go tertiary. Um, but from primary producers, there are several. Copper biological systems is a big one. Beneficial insectary is a big one. Um, and if they don't have the nematodes themselves, uh, for whatever reason, maybe supplies, they'll definitely know a source for you. And uh, usually these places are very professional and are willing to sort of point you in the right direction. Okay. And then one last thing, which we probably should have gone over in, in the beginning is, is understanding the life cycle a little bit better. You know, if you have a population of fungus gnats, you get your little sticky cards, maybe you're spraying neem and all of a sudden they're gone. Well, they've laid eggs, you know, in the, the medium, right? So like you could have a whole new population happen after a little while, right? So what is kind of the, the life cycle of a fungus gnat? There are many kinds of fungus gnats. Uh, a lot of people interact with the dark-winged fungus gnats, which is um, the Burdigia genus. Um, and you can tell them, they're very often control confused for like aphids, especially like rice root aphids and things like this. So um, they're very thin-bodied. Uh, they like to walk and they're very nimble when they walk across uh, like a substrate, for example, like your soil. Uh, the, that's what the adults look like. They're kind of thin, tiny flies, not very substantial. They don't they don't approach anywhere near the size of like a housefly, for example. Um, again, they're very dainty. But the fungus gnat larvae themselves can be told from other sort of worm-like organisms because they have a white, cream-colored body. Sometimes you can see the gray intestinal tract, and they'll have a black capsule head, which is very important because other uh, fly larvae may, may lack this entirely. So you can definitely tell them from other things. Um, they're part of different groups. So like a white colored larva that can get about, um, you know, a few millimeters long. Uh, and uh, it oftentimes they can also produce sort of a mucus. So if you have a large population of them, or if you have a population, especially after you've dried, they can use that mucus and create kind of like a, like a tunnel that can be shelter for them when it gets drier as well. So that's one reason why drying might not be enough and you have to go in uh, with some sort of a product. Uh, additionally, you could use something like a bacillus product, but specifically something like Israelensis, bacillus subtilis, or sorry, bacillus thuringiensis, Israelensis, which I will be happy to talk about or spell for anyone who needs it. Uh, but that's the particular fly-associated uh, subtype for that uh, species of bacteria. Gotcha. Okay. That's some good information for sure. Let's move on to spider mites. So uh, another thing that's very, very common in the grow room, um, you know, indoors, outdoors. Talk to us about spider mites. What are spider mites? Maybe talk about their life cycle of spider mites and how to battle them. So absolutely. So spider mites, I love to talk about because they're, uh, they're amazingly adaptive. 
They feed on over 13,000, or 1,300 rather, plants out there that are documented. They do this really well because much of their genome is actually um, associated with detoxification and plant immune system suppression genes. So when they go to feed on the plant, they will feed on the individual cell contents with their stylet. And when they do that, they produce a saliva that suppresses the immune response locally. And they also are able to detoxify like toxins and things that the plant produces that could be poisonous for it. And spider mites are um, haplodiploid, which is just a fancy way of saying that the females, if they're mated, will produce males. Or rather, if they're unmated, they produce males. If they're mated, they'll produce females. So it only takes one female mite for you to have an infestation. They will, when populations get very large, uh, they tend to produce a more dense webbing. They'll produce small amounts of webbing when they're a small colony, and they produce round circular eggs, and they have a red color, and they often have this sort of two spotting, which is actually their intestinal pouches. But if they haven't fed very much yet, or if they're a particular subtype, like the, um, uh, the red form that's just bright cinnabar color, um, then you might think, oh, it doesn't have the two spots. That might not be the two spot spider mite. But indeed, they come in several different colors, like green or whitish or reddish or orangish. So you just have to be vigilant. Um, but what happens is that when the population gets high, they will sort of aggregate at the top of the plant and they will try to use silk in order to um, catch the air like baby spiders often do and uh, move a short distance or sometimes, in some cases, of quite a long distance on air currents. And this is actually a common theme with a lot of um, arachnids and insects. Gotcha. And then they lay their eggs underneath the leaf, right, on the bottom part of the leaf. So, um, you know, oftentimes a general practice is to inspect the leaves on a daily basis, you know, and looking the underside of the leaves. These are small enough to where you're going to need a, a little handheld microscope, right? I would say that you can usually see them visibly with your eyes naked, but it definitely can help you, especially if maybe your eyesight's a, a little bit uh, worn for wear, or um, if you're in a situation where, because sometimes they don't move that often when they're feeding, so it can be a little bit difficult. But as you say, um, not only spider mice, but many other insects that feed on leaves, and or rather mites and arthropods, you can find them on the underside of leaves. And there's a variety of reasons for that. It evades uh, predation, but also the harmful UV rays from the natural environment is usually not great for them either. So uh, it's a great way for them to get both benefits. In regards to combating them, spraying, a lot of people like to use sprays to combat them, you know, whether it be in veg. Sometimes when you get up to flower, people don't want to spray at all. Do you have any recommendations for sprays they should use and like how often? I know you talked about application rates a little bit, but can you give us a little bit of, of, of background on, on the sprays that can be used? Absolutely. So I think that it's very useful to utilize things like wettable sulfur, not burn sulfur, but wettable sulfur. Uh, granules that you can apply. It's really great with plants that uh, don't have some sort of a, uh, like if they have delicate flowers that you're trying to, uh, you know, so avoid damaging. Sometimes you can use this and you won't have a problem as much as you have with some harsh chemistry potentially or harsher chemistry, but it really is plant dependent. Um, it's great if the plants are in some sort of a non-floral reproductive stage because those tissues can be a little bit, um, like I said, delicate. 
And if you apply um, to like a houseplant or something like that, you can get good coverage pretty easily. And this sulfur is also going to be really well uh, to do against not just spider mites, but other sorts of insects that we'll talk about later. So I like to use that because it's very cheap, very affordable. You can get it in most places. Um, so that makes it a very ideal thing to apply. Um, you can also use other chemistries as well, but um, for the most part, I find that to be a pretty useful one to utilize that you can have access to that's non-commercial at least. Is it safe to spray on flowers too or no? It depends on the flower we're talking about. Um, in my experience, uh, even in commercial settings with ornamental plants, uh, wettable sulfur worked pretty fine as long as we didn't get too randy with the, um, uh, with the level. Uh, we even sprayed it on Gerbera daisies, lilies, roses. We didn't have a problem, really. Um, some spray roses, maybe, if they're very young, uh, could be negatively affected. Okay, and then medicinal varieties? Um, I wouldn't apply it. I would be very careful and cautious because a lot of the medicinal substances and things might be associated with the flowering or perhaps even the fruiting bodies. And um, I would just try to keep that... Uh, exposure to a minimum. Okay. And then one last thing, environment for spider mites. I've heard they thrive in, correct me if I'm wrong, warmer conditions. Would it make sense to potentially, if you if you have a spider mite infestation, to lower the temps temporarily to try to reduce the you know reproduction or anything like that? Oh, that's a good point. I've had people ask me that several times. Um, I think that generally you probably don't get too much of a benefit out of it, especially if you're using some sort of a, an application very quickly. But you're absolutely right that they are associated with higher temperatures. And um, to that end, you bring up a really great point. Because if you track your pests, um, and I recommend people do this, uh, they can kind of find, you can find patterns that maybe you get spider mites generally on the onset of like late spring, early summer where it gets hot. And so if you know that already, you can kind of get yourself ready for that potential ingress seasonally. And that can be very, very useful in my experience. Let's move on to aphids. So uh, I've battled aphids, particularly in my outdoor garden. I was growing in my vegetable garden. I had some, some beautiful lettuce, some kale, and then my bok choy. And the aphids liked the bok choy. And I don't know if it was because the bok choy was starting to get deficiencies or something. I know, uh, generally speaking, if a plant is weakened, it's going through some sort of deficiencies, it's more prone to getting pests. But uh, my bok choy was just, it was loaded with aphids. I mean, they were burrowed like deep inside the leaves and this was going to harvest, you know? And I was like, oh, what the heck? Anyways, uh, I've had a bad past experience with them. Talk to us about aphids. What are they? What's their life cycle, et cetera, et cetera. So aphids are very complicated to talk about. They have a sort of an interesting life cycle. For a lot of them, um, they tend to be very host-specific. So they'll only feed on one or a few related species. Or they sometimes are very generalistic and they'll feed on tons of different ones. The peach aphids are a good example of the latter. Um, and uh, I can totally visualize what you're talking about. A lot of times, because they're clonal, so aphids are generally female. There are sometimes males, but usually colonies are clonal females with a live birth clonal offspring. In fact, aphids are born not just mothers, but grandmothers, believe it or not. Um, so that's that owes to their reproductive capacity. They produce tons of, of, a, of a young. 
and that's the key to their ability to survive so well. And um, so those clonal uh, populations, they'll just keep reproducing and reproducing on a plant. And if the plant starts to senesce, or like you mentioned, it might get some sort of nutrient deficiency, they can taste that essentially when they're feeding. And that might stimulate in addition to like sort of weather patterns changing, other sorts of things like that, that can stimulate them to create a second adult form that has wings. And that winged form is meant to disperse to other plants. Um, and some, sort of some aphids, this they require an alternative host. So they'll, they'll feed on like weedy plants or herbaceous plants on one in some seasons, and then they'll switch to like woodier tree-like plants in another case. So not all aphids do this, but that is um, one other kind of lifestyle. And uh, when they create the winged forms, in that case, they might be going to that alternative host, or they're just trying to seek another host um, to go to because the colony is probably well-developed at that point. So that's their life cycle, essentially. And there's many things you can use to affect them. Uh, we, we talked about spider mites earlier. I just want to say that you can get biocontrols for them as well. Like um, for the spider mites, persimilis is really good. Uh, I've often recommended them uh, quite a bit. For aphids, you can use things like uh, aphidias wasps as well. Aphidias ervi, aphidias metricarii are really common to use. And they parasitize the aphids. You can also get the... Um, Aphidolides aphidomyza, which is a, a midge, the larvae of which will feed on aphids. And if you're a home grower, you should watch out for things called hoverflies or syrphidae. So the syrphidae family are these bright, almost wasp-like colored hoverflies oftentimes. And they're called hoverflies or flowerflies because the adults kind of, like a hummingbird, can hover in one place. And um, you can sometimes find these larvae that can kind of look like caterpillars. Um, kind of bounding up and down your plants looking for aphids to feed on. And um, one of the things that I have on my YouTube channel are observational footage and clips of hoverflies and beneficial insects and, and pests as well. So if you're curious about what they can look like, you can check them out on the YouTube channel. But uh, uh, it's very important if you see a colony um, of aphids and you see these like worm-like organisms kind of around them uh, don't kill them because they're not caterpillars they're actually going to attack the aphids that you're dealing with um, so that's an important thing that i like to talk about that's good to know and then one more follow-up question in regards to you know a plant being deficient and a pest being more prone to attack now i've heard talking about bricks i don't know how familiar you are with bricks levels but from what is said very often is that if your bricks level is above 12 percent you're pretty much invisible to pests is that true or is that bro science that's never been my experience and the, I have actually made several videos about this topic. It's very pernicious. Um, basically, so bricks has to do with not a lot of times people simplify it to sugar content. And a lot of times people are looking for sugar content, specifically uh, the photosynthate. Right. And um, I like to say it like this. Bricks can't not be useful. It has to be helpful to the plant. Uh, the photosynthate is incredibly important for um the basic powering of its metabolism, right? Um, so that's, it can't not, not be helpful. But uh, um, insects and other things have great ways of feeding on plants and the sugars inside and also the other constituents in the phloem. 
Bricks levels also change rapidly, especially if we're dealing with uh, most plants that people are dealing with that uh, photosynthesize way. They photosynthesize during the day and then they, all, that, all those processes kind of shut off during nighttime. Not all plants do this, but a lot of them do. And um, in that case, you're getting bricks levels that are not the same consistently. So for a lot of reasons, bricks doesn't really make sense as a proxy for plant health. Uh, but it can be really helpful just to gauge the photosynthetic rate of the plant. Um, and to that matter, aphids and many other insects have tons of enzymes and detoxification genes and things related to um, suppressing plant immune response and suppressing or detoxifying compounds. And aphids are particularly good at this. Uh, in my video about aphid physiology and why aphids can eat healthy plants, I go over with research from an insect physiologist um, that talks about how they were able to get aphids to feed on uh, sugar sources of 34% bricks, uh, which is pretty massive. And um, they were also able to target, sorry, they were able to target the rate at which when they increased the bricks, that how the aphids were able to um, basically... Uh, degrade the sugars that they were feeding on and um, deal with them totally. So as they moved from one megapascal to four megapascals of pressure, which is actually massive when you think about how small these insects are, the sugars were so concentrated, um, you, could, you could say that four megapascals is about the pressure that a paintball marker makes, you know, when it's propelling a paintball. So pretty, pretty big. And the enzymes and then we're able to break down those sugars uh, with no problem. And then they excrete them as honeydew. So, oh, that's another thing we should probably talk about. A great way to find if you have aphids is if you see these the sticky substance on the leaves of your plants. You can look up from those leaves and you can often find aphids. And sometimes that honeydew is colonized with um, a, uh, a fungus uh, called sooty mold. It's not directly pathogenic to the plant, but it does grow on the honeydew and it can make the plants um, not cosmetically viable, for example. That's interesting. Definitely some useful information there. Uh, let's move on to thrips. Can you talk to us about thrips? What are thrips and what are their life cycle? It's great that you mentioned thrips right after aphids. Believe it or not, they're very closely related, um, the two orders of uh, Hemitera and Thysanoptera. A long time ago, they diverted and um, they have a lot of similar characteristics. Uh, thrips are, uh, there's over 5,000 species of thrips, but a very small percentage of them are actually pest um, species. And uh, the one that most people are dealing with are Western flower thrips. There's also other ones like chili thrips and onion thrips, which are also very common to deal with. But I think Western flower thrips is, is the most documented for sure. And most research actually concerns Western flower thrips. As they uh, reproduce, essentially, some thrips don't do this, but a lot of thrips will, and Western flower thrips in particular, will actually put their eggs inside the plant tissue. So you can run into a situation where somebody maybe is a nursery and they spray their plants, or they do whatever with a contact spray or biocontrols. And they're thinking, oh, no thrips, it's fine. They sell it to somebody, and thrips are coming out of the tissues. Little baby nymph, uh, yeah, nymphs. And those nymphs come out, 
they feed on the plant tissues and they create this sort of silvering or scarring damage from their feeding. And you can usually tell thrips from other pests, not only because they have this like thin kind of like cigar shape, uh, especially as nymphs, but also as adults, they have these feathery wings. So if you're scoping them, you can kind of see them. They have a very, um, very specific kind of look to them, this sort of thin look. And that allows them to get into crevices really easily. They can often feed on pollen as well. So if your plant feeds or creates copious amounts of pollen, then that can be also a big food source for them, and especially the females to reproduce. And uh, But as the nymphs uh, feed, they will turn into pupae, and those pupae will often fall to the ground, which is why um, a comprehensive treatment for thrips often includes something in the soil, either a biocontrol or some sort of a spray application so that you can get them, or onto the ground itself if you're growing inside, because um, whether in a greenhouse or in just like a home grow situation, uh, the floor can also be a, a residual place for various pests, but especially these pupae. And then over time, those pupae will develop and adults will come out and uh, they're very, very vagile. They'll, f they'll fly all over the place and they're really great at getting into places. Um, many research reports have been um, produced simply describing how good thrips are at evading uh, destruction and getting into new places. So don't feel too bad if you get a thrips uh, ingress into your location because they're everywhere basically. So what are some of the sprays that you can use or ways to combat thrips? My favorite way to combat thrips is actually using predatory mites and maintaining a population at a certain level inside your home growth space. Uh, this actually works out really well for other mites that are especially those you're able to uh, maintain on some sort of alternative food source. So like a feeder mite, for example, Swirsky or Cucumerous mites are preferred for this. They'll also feed on other things like white flies or uh, sometimes moth eggs, for example, as well as um, uh, russet mites and broad mites and things like this. So you can get kind of a, a generalized uh, protection from having that population there. But in addition to that, you can also use things like the wettable sulfur I mentioned, um, many thrips have actually developed quite a robust resistance to some of even the harsher chemistries that I wouldn't advocate for people to utilize, uh, sort of systemic uh, pesticides and things like this. Um, and then the resistance makes it even less of a viable choice. But the azadiractin and pyrethrin I mentioned, which is pretty common and a lot of people like to use, I find often does work as well. But you got to be careful because if we overapply these sorts of things, we can run into resistance issues. Okay, gotcha. Let's move on to white flies. So I've actually had a couple flying around in my grow room, my indoor grow room. Killed them off and that was it. It was kind of strange. Didn't last very long. But talk to us about white flies. You know, what are they? What's their life cycle? So on and so forth. So white flies are really interesting because um, there's several different kinds. Uh, a lot of people deal with the so-called silver leaf white fly, Bamesia tabasi. But there's also... Um, the greenhouse whitefly, this is a trialudes or whatever, and um, there's a couple of others out there. Even a black whitefly, which is a whitefly, but it's colored black. And um, these, they, as nymphs, they actually look like little scale insects, little um, kind of sessile, just like clumps um, on your plant, on your leaves or on your stems potentially, but usually on the leaves. And uh, as they develop 
at least with the silverleaf white fly, you can start to see little eyes <laughs> on the uh, on the nymph. Then they pupate, and then adults will come out of them. Adults are usually white with sort of a waxy uh, covering on their on their bodies, and uh, I guess they're colored white, right? And so they will feed in the same place where their nymphs are. And usually, they like to aggregate as a colony. And I often find that they're 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 they work the best, I think in places where the foliage is like denser and there's a lot less light penetration. I find that that's pretty common in a lot of plants. And uh, there's many ways you can combat them. Um, a lot of the sprays that I've already mentioned before work really well. I actually cut my teeth on using Bouveria bassiana against white flies to great, great effect because they tend to stay together like they do. So the fungus, when you spray it, the spores germinate on the body penetrate the cuticle, kill them from the inside out, and then they just move on to the very next one. It's actually a terrible way to go out, if you ask me, but uh, it's very highly effective. Um, I should also mention that specifically for the silverleaf whitefly, it's a super vector of over 480 plant viruses. And although aphids tend to be the supreme plant virus vector, whiteflies are probably right up there, especially this species. So if you grow plants like beets or peppers or tomatoes or things like that, uh, just be aware that sometimes you might get a pathogen like a virus. And that could be very lethal to your plant as well. So just be careful with them. But like you've actually mentioned, I find white flies are pretty easy to deal with, to be honest. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, viruses. We talked about before this, how an episode on, a complete episode on viroids, viruses, funguses, stuff like that would be a good one. So maybe in the future we can do a part two where we get into detail on those things because uh, I agree with you. There's a lot of information to be said about that. And I think that there's a lot of things that people don't know about that, you know, and how easy it is to transfer viruses, for example, from plant to plant. So maybe in the future we can do a part two. One more thing that I wanted to ask would be, are white flies attracted to the yellow stickies like other flies typically are? Absolutely. In fact, uh, one of the viruses that we were, that I was mentioning earlier, um, it destroys parts of its brain, the white fly, in order to allow it to not have a preference for yellow which allows the virus to likely go to a green plant that is not infected. So believe it or not, that's pretty amazing. So yes, in fact, whiteflies do prefer, like a lot of insects, the yellow color um, because it's usually a sign of senescence or nutrient deficiency or some sort of a problem, maybe a pathogen, and that will make the plant uh, an easier host. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't know that. Okay, how about next we go into russet mites? Talk to us about russet mites. You want to let us know, you know what they are, their life cycle. I heard they're a beast to battle. They really are. And in a, there are several russet mites. In fact, most russet mites, if you look at the entire group, and they're not very well documented, to be honest, but a lot of russet mites are actually not pests of their hosts. Um, most russet mites out in nature, of which there are many thousands, um, they actually don't cause a lot of problems. But those that we do know, they're sometimes called blister mites because they can produce like a, a gall in the plant. Uh, a lot of different russet mites have this effect on various trees. Uh, but uh, russet mites that we find in uh, crop protection, agriculture, like aloe russet mite or citrus russet mite or uh, other kinds of russet mites, those are a problem uh, because they are very, very, very damaging to the host. And in a lot of cases, honestly, sometimes the best thing you can do is actually cull 
a couple of the plants if they are very heavily infested. So like very carefully taking them out of whatever your setup is and putting them in a bag, tying off the bag and throwing it away. Um, Russet mites are typically specialists, so they don't typically feed on other plants of a, of a different species or genus or family. So like, for example, if you have tomato russet mite, it's very unlikely, pretty much not going to happen that that russet mite is going to feed on something like aloe or citrus, like I mentioned before. Um, there's also a rosebud mite, for that matter, that transmits a virus that I actually had the ignoble experience of having to deal with. Um, we bought all these new roses at an ornamental grow that I worked with, and those roses all came from a nursery that just got done being shut down for like a year and a half, cleaning everything, getting rid of everything because they had this virus that's uh, vectored by the russet. And then that russet mite came right back and we had to we had to quarantine all of our plants. It was very, very arduous. So russet mites are very difficult to deal with typically. Some of the things you can do for them are like the predatory mites I had mentioned earlier because russet mites can often be uh, transferred on the air, believe it or not. Uh, they're so small that they can catch wind really easily and in a strong gust of wind they can be propelled up into the air and move um, hundreds of meters. Sometimes short distances, sometimes long distances. Uh, but what will happen oftentimes, they'll get into your grow either on people's clothing or on the wind or whatever and they get onto one plant and they have a very simple life cycle. They live fast and they reproduce often. So they don't survive for very much more than uh, like nine or 10 days in a lot of cases, and uh, they reproduce rapidly. So usually what will happen is if they come in on the wind or if they get transferred to somebody through clothing, there'll be like one or a couple of hot spots, and then those, pop those plants that get infected first will sort of show the symptoms much quickly. And uh, if you recognize it immediately, uh, rusted mice often create a... Um, like a crinkled surface on the leaves of plants uh, they can cause a, um, a crinkling. And if they're in a high population, you can almost see them like an orange, reddish orange dust uh, on the plant itself, which is a uh, very bizarre looking for people who have not experienced it. But if you do have that case, I would recommend culling the plants that are most problematic and then applying something like a sulfur spray, like I mentioned earlier, or predatory mice like Swirsky or Cucumerus. Um, I find it is highly effective. You mentioned culling off the plants, so killing off the plants is the last thing people want to do, but I'm glad you're brutally honest because there's, I've seen so many people that have gotten rusted mites, you know, and it's it's too late. You know, they, they got to the point where they have to cull it because there's just no way around it. So inspecting your plant on a daily basis, once you identify it, take an immediate action is certainly key for, for something like rusted mites for sure. Rapidity especially. I have to agree with you there. How about broad mites? Kind of similar? Can you talk to us about broad mites and kind of their life cycle and such? Yeah, so broad mites are very similar in damage and in profile. So russet mites have a sort of worm-like body when you see them under a scope. Um, and broad mites have kind of a American football shape to them. And um, whereas russet mites produce kind of circular eggs... Broad mites produce like a sort of a oblong egg that has um, little protrusions called tubercles. But on a camera, they often look like polka dots. So if they if it's sort of a dotted egg that you're looking at, and you see sort of a similar 
uh, crinkling, gnarling that's happening to your plant leaves, then you're probably dealing with broad mites, but you'll probably also see the adults moving around. Um, so recip, uh, sorry, so broad mites uh, have a similar sort of treatment regimen to russet mites, to be honest, because they cause similar damage. It's oftentimes very useful to just get rid of a plant if it's very highly infested. If you have like a row of plants or if you have like a home grow situation where you've got like, again, like a, a bed row and there's like multiple plants, but like one or two of them is really bad. I very much recommend just getting rid of one of the worst ones if you can afford to do so. Uh, it can be very critical to your, like you said, to your success at the end. Um, that's why it's important to be very vigilant. And if you can see the damage earlier and when it's only on a couple of leaves rather than the entire plant, you're, you are going to be much more successful. Again, um, applications of things like sulfur sprays are very useful. I don't want to sound too much like a broken record there, but um, a lot of these predatory mites are very useful for that reason. That's why people like to use them a lot. And again, maintaining that population before you get the problem is really great because an ingressing small population gets decimated and annihilated way before it approaches sort of a pestiferous level. Um, let's see, let me think about that for a moment. Is that everything that's important for them? Um, oh, well, we just talked about whiteflies. So believe it or not, the silverleaf whitefly is another problem, which is that broad mites are actually attracted to the wax that they produce, specifically that species. And so broad mites will get up. There's a very famous uh, scanning electron microscope image of a white fly with a bunch of broad mites on its legs. And um, what will happen is that the broad mites attach to them. The white fly flies to another plant and the broad mites feed on it. Broad mites genus name is polyphagotarsinemus. Tarsinemus is the type of mite. Poly means many. Phago means eat. They eat a lot of plants. Many, many, many kinds of plants. So whatever the Wi-Fi lands on, it's probably a suitable host. So that's another thing to watch out for. That's crazy. You mentioned, for all the pests we talk about, sometimes you mentioned kind of what the damage would look like on the plant. I assume that the folks could potentially go to your YouTube channel and kind of see more detailed images of like, you know, the damage that the pests do to the plants. Or do you have a website or, or what? Absolutely. So uh, you can find a lot of that. Uh, information. In fact, I do have a video on broad mite damage in particular and what they look like when you're looking at them through the microscope and also what their damage looks like on the plants. Uh, so that's Xenthanol on YouTube. Um, you can also check me out on Xenthanol.com as well. But uh, a lot of that free educational information is on the Xenthanol YouTube channel. I think it's very important. A lot of people just don't get access to this kind of information or these pictures until they actually have to deal with them, which is way too late. Uh, but if they're able to recognize it earlier, um, it just it is night and day for success rates. That's awesome that they can just go to your channel and, and reference those because that can definitely be helpful in understanding what's attacking their plant. You know what I mean? Seeing the actual damage that's happening. So Cool. So let's get into some of the things that are very common with outdoors. So grasshoppers, for example, let's start with them. Those are ones of the things that will crawl all over your plants and, and eat the leaves and stuff. So talk to us about grasshoppers, you know, life cycle and uh, how do you combat them and, and things like that. You got to be very careful. And depending on where you are in the world, grasshoppers can be or locusts can be in a massively big problem that uh, one particular cultivator is just not going to be able to handle very effectively, to be honest. And um, even in the United States of America, uh, you know, in most places in the world, it costs millions of dollars for nations to, to deal with the damage. And they use very harsh chemistries and they still don't have great control. So 
this is going to be very generalized information because there's many different kinds of grasshoppers, but they're incredibly good at dealing uh, with pesticides and things like that. Uh, and they move in large swarms a lot of the time as well, in, in, in bands rather. And uh, so grasshoppers, a lot of times when people are dealing with grasshopper damage, um, I think that the best way to actually deal with them, if you are in a place where you get a lot of them, is actually to create sort of a physical barrier, like a mesh screen or something like that. Mesh screens work really well for other things like thrips, if you can get thrips screen, and, um, and other sorts of things like moths that will come in and lay eggs on your plants. So mesh screen is good for those pests as well. But specifically for grasshoppers, it's really good because there's not a whole lot of things you can do for them. Grasshoppers, um, the females will uh, lay their eggs into soil, usually. And um, then, see, you know, in a, in a season, those nymphs come out of the soil. So one of the things you can do for them as they're developing the soil is you can apply something like uh, Nosema, which is a microsporidian parasite. You can also apply uh, certain fungi there that exist uh, into the soil as well, and that can kind of damage them. You can also apply certain chemistries too, but a lot of times those are kind of hazardous for the environment, and I... I'm not a huge advocate for it, but uh, sometimes it's between you feeding your family and, um, you know, having to deal with the, the locusts. So uh, it can be a very difficult balance to um, to set there. That's why I think the physical barriers are just so much important, so much more important, especially if you're in a, a sort of a, a smaller space. It's a lot more manageable to expect rather than a large field or something like that. Let's see what else is there to say about them. Yeah, I think that's a, I mean, that, that should be helpful. Uh for sprays, I like to use Bouveria bastiana, and in particular, um, there's a strain of it called Bouveria bastiana GHA. That actually stands for Grasshopper Active, which a lot of people don't know. Uh, it was actually first colonized on um, cucumber beetles, but they took it, they reproduced it on grasshoppers a bunch of times, and now it's very well adapted to grasshoppers. So I'm a big fan of using that as well. Okay. Next up I have on the list, I, I grouped together caterpillars and inchworms. I'm not sure if you think those would be appropriate to group together or not, but can you talk to us about caterpillars, inchworms, life cycle, how to battle, things like that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, the Lepidoptera of moths and butterflies is actually one of the, one of the four biggest uh, insect orders. So there's a ton of variation, but generally speaking, um, it goes like this. A moth or a butterfly will lay an egg. The egg turns into a caterpillar. You know, a caterpillar comes out of the egg. It's very, very tiny, and it has to grow really, really quickly and really, really rapidly. So a lot of caterpillars that people deal with that are pests are pests because they're basically invisible. They only eat a little bit of food because they're so small. But then as they start to grow, and this is true for like army worms, like Spidoptera, uh, Helicoverpa, the budworms, and things like this, uh, they will... It will feed on the plant leaves and other foliage. And if you're not paying close attention, in a couple of weeks or so, maybe about one week or one week and a half, uh, all of the larvae are now going to become a, a larger instar. And then they eat like a much more massive amount of food. So all of a sudden the decimation tanks you. And you're like, where did this come from? And that's a very common complaint with a lot of these really pestiferous caterpillars. They feed on cruciferous vegetables and other things like that. Um, so the caterpillar turns into some sort of a chrysalis or a pupa. If they're moths, they tend to uh, either they'll wrap around silk and leaves and create uh, a pupa in the foliage, or they might 
uh, go to the ground and burrow and create a pupa in the soil. It depends on what species you're dealing with. Uh, caterpillars and moths can also be very difficult to identify sometimes if you don't have um, either a really recognizable larval stage, so like usually an older larva, but a lot of these things, like you can look it up, uh, they'll have very, very different morphologies. Uh, they'll be the same species, but like one of them will be like a light green with some lines, you know, another, and then they'll have another phenotype that's like dark black with like white spots. And it's like, they're the same species, but they look nothing alike. So that can be very confusing for people as well. Same is also true for the adult forms. Moths can often be um, different in uh, phenotype, and so that can cause some, some issues with identification. But if you can identify it, if you can go to an extension agent, or if you're able to look it up yourself, or contact me, I'm happy to help, um, then that can be something that you can do to identify it, and then you can render the appropriate treatment for them. Because some larvae, they like to stay on the foliage. Some larvae, you like to bore into the flower material or the fruit material, you know, getting a worm in your apple, so to speak. So it really does depend on what you're growing and what you're dealing with. Uh, if there's something like a, a burrowing caterpillar that likes to get into the stem or the floral tissue, you know, that's very difficult and also presents a kind of a quagmire because even if you do kill it somehow, the rotting corpse of that caterpillar is going to foul the rest of the material in your plant whether it's a medicinal plant or whether it's a fruit bearing plant or something like that so it can it, again kind of like what i say with the grasshopper sometimes the best you know the best defense is to not play the game <laughs> and to have some sort of a physical barrier or something like that that keeps them from laying the eggs on the plants now some larvae do constantly move from one plant to another plant and they'll travel along the ground like those army worms I kind of briefly mentioned. Um, but a lot of times that's not the case. And so like with the inchworms you're talking about, they don't make a whole big habit of like moving across the ground because that's very dangerous for them. Um, so in those cases, you know, I would, I would really say that a physical barrier is really important and being very vigilant and either picking them off, having chickens maybe even to run through can be very effective. You can also buy uh, parasitoid wasps like uh, Trichogramma, which is an egg parasitoid. It parasitizes the eggs and then other ones that parasitize the larvae themselves. There's actually also some viruses you can buy, uh, polyhydrosis viruses that are for certain species. They only target that species. You apply it on your plants, the caterpillars eat the foliage. Unfortunately, some foliage has to be eaten, uh, but then it gets into their gut and it destroys them from the inside out. Um, so that's available for some people as well. But uh, by and large, um, the best strategy is to not be there <laughs> or not be uh, um, vulnerable to their presence in the first place because the moth can't get through uh, a barrier that's fine, usually. You mentioned how some can borrow in the stem and actually borrow themselves in the flower as well. You know, one thing, if you're leaving caterpillars on there or inchworms or, or whatever, some of them you know, take dumps all over your flowers, right? So if you're if you're growing medicinal varieties and you've got caterpillars all, all over your buds, well, then you've got their waste on their buds too. So just keep that in mind. You don't want to be uh, smoking waste there. <laughs> yeah, and it can be a vector for fungal problems too, and they create lesions as well. So it's just all around. It's a very, a very difficult thing to deal with. You want to not have the damage in the first place, which is easy to say, but that's why preventative measures are so critical. 
Let's touch on leaf miners next. Now, you said there's a couple different types. You know, whichever type you feel is, is more common that you want to cover, you know, feel free to cover. But let us know about leaf miners, their life cycle, and how to combat. Absolutely. So there are some mods that are called leaf miner mods. And so they have a, they just have a similar uh, style of growing as the fly leaf miners that exist. So the leaf miner flies are actually some of the first pests I ever dealt with in a professional capacity. So I know all about them. The agromycetae are the leaf miner flies, and they feed on all kinds of things like celery, ornamental flowers, um, uh, pepper plants, and also various weedy plants that you might find as you're walking across your neighborhood. But uh, both the moths and the flies basically have a similar sort of situation where they lay eggs on the plant or inside the, the leaf tissue, and essentially both of the larvae of both of these groups will exist within the thin margins between the upper and lower leaves and as they feed they get bigger and bigger and create these like long winding tunnels sometimes they're in a design sometimes it's kind of chaotic but essentially uh after a period of time the larvae will um pupate certain species do different things sometimes they pupate outside sometimes they pupate inside it just depends um and then a fly or a moth will come out of the pupa and that's how the life cycle occurs so uh, kind of want to prevent that from happening in the first place. If you're dealing with leaf miner flies, um, I like to use something like a parasitoid wasp, like a Diglyphus azei, which is very commonly used um, in commercial settings, at least. Uh, but you can also, yeah, you can also use um, there's a Dacnusa sibirica, which is also a parasitoid wasp as well that can be utilized against them. Um, the leaf miner flies. In my experience, they often do um, become resistant to harsh chemistries. In commercial agriculture, it's very common to utilize uh, systemic pesticides against them because they live systemically in the plant, right? Um, which makes sense. But uh, in my experience, I've, um, I've actually had the um, opportunity to collect samples and then have them tested for resistance to various common uh, systemic chemistries. And they've come back with some egregious levels, like 600 times uh, resistant. You know, when a uh, resistance level is like uh, a factor of like 10, they're like 600. They can swim in that compound and have no problems. So just be very careful that uh, if you use a chemistry, even like something that's less harsh, um, it might not be super effective uh, against them. So that's just something to consider. And um, as far as treating them though, uh, yeah, those parasitoids are very good. Um, when they insert into the leaves, sometimes they have a hole, right? Uh, especially if flies, they oviposit, they create this little hole when they, when they sting the, they sting the leaf, as they say. And then, uh, that opening can be exploited with like some, some of the things I said before, like Isaria fumosaurusia is a fungus that you can apply. The Bouveria fungus I mentioned earlier can work well and you can sort of, um, you can apply it and the spores get into the tunnel and they can get into the larvae uh, if you apply it um, sort of at an aggressive rate. I find that can be also useful. Great, great information for sure. You mentioned that, you know, some of these pests, they're going to leave deposits or waste on the plant, right? Some folks, what they'll do on their medicinal plants is they will 
after they harvest, they'll do bud washing. I'm not sure if you've heard about what bud washing is, but basically they'll, they'll, they'll take their plant and they'll dunk it in water. They'll dunk it into a solution. Usually it's like baking soda and lemon juice mixed together. Uh, they'll dunk, dunk it in there, try to get all the waste off. Then they'll dunk it in a bucket of plain water. Then they'll dunk it in another bucket of plain water, right? So they're, they're trying to get the debris or the waste off. What are your thoughts, overall thoughts on bud washing? Uh, you know, I ha- I kind of go back and forth on it. And on the one hand, I feel like in some cases, especially if you're growing for yourself, maybe that's a remediation that uh, is useful for you. But on the other hand, I do think that you might damage some of the medicinal, um, you know, uh, constituents, for lack of a better term, uh, if you're doing that. If you're washing like fruits and vegetables and things like that, I think that's actually really appropriate and useful. And a lot of people do that great efficacy um again if we're dealing with something like the leaf minor larvae and those sorts of things that's going to be embedded in the tissues and much harder to deal with um but uh you know if you got a lot of like uh frass uh as they call it on the on the medicinal plant material and things like that um personally i mean i think maybe like shaking it off and things like that can be useful but i like to just cut it away it's um you know of course that's painful to say but uh, I'd rather do that personally than um, than the alternative because I think you might overall maybe degrade the problem, the project, uh, sorry, the product further. Gotcha. That makes sense. Well, we covered a lot in this podcast episode. Certainly didn't cover every single pest there is. Love to know in the comment section below, what pest didn't we cover that you would like to see in the future? Let us know down in the comment section below. Matthew, this was awesome. This was really, really cool. Just a great general overview of the top 10 pests that could invade your garden and what to do to combat them. So really appreciate your time today and and the knowledge that you've given both me and my audience. Tell us, how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? Well, I very much appreciate it, Chris, and I look forward to having another episode with you. Um, You can find me at zinthanol.com, especially for professional inquiries. You can also find my educational information in two main places. The first one is that Zenthanol YouTube channel, where I produce uh, observational footage, uh, pest primer videos about various pests, and other sorts of things. I just did an intro on um, viroids and with a particular uh, emphasis on the hot latent viroid, uh, which you can check out. And I also make a lot of... Um, uh, information available on my Instagram account at SyncAngel, that's S-Y-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-L. And that's my personal account where I often have IGTV live streams where I talk to people and my followers about various things like you and I are right now. And um, those are the two major places where I produce that sort of content for people. And um, I'm very excited and I'm honestly humbled. And it's a little bit surreal still after almost 12 years of doing this that I'm able to reach out and help as many people as I can. Uh, I just want to emphasize that I work um, tirelessly on this. It's very much a passion of mine to keep people from being able to deal with pests, uh, especially in situations where the plants are lacking in support and infrastructure from various groups. So I'm happy that you're also somebody who is facilitating that information that's crucial for our success.
Thank you. Absolutely. It's clear that you've got passion towards this. So I love it. It just radiates from you and, and it's infectious in a sense. So awesome stuff. Like I mentioned earlier in the episode, I'll definitely have links to Matthew's channels down in the description section below. If you enjoyed this video, click that thumbs up button. That helps with having this get recommended through YouTube. So if you're on YouTube, definitely hit the thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Every single week I'm releasing these podcast episodes with a new guest every single week. If you're on one of the podcast platforms, particularly Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. That's something that helps with spreading this information as well, is leaving that ratings and reviews and, and of course, sharing these episodes. Share with somebody who you think would benefit from this information. So. Once again, Matthew, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast. This has been a fantastic episode, just jam-packed full of information. So I appreciate you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Well, thank you very much. I look forward to our mutual success. <laughs>